As we come to worship the Lord, we remember that he invites us to come. Indeed, he commands us to worship him, and we may draw near to him with confidence. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that, it was, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now this morning we were considering the first three chapters in the prophecy of Hosea and we'll turn this evening to chapter 11 and we'll read the first 11 verses of the chapter and when we've read those verses then we'll turn to the New Testament, to the Gospel according to Matthew and to chapter 2. In case you're wondering we're not going to read verse 12 because really that belongs with chapter 12. So we'll just read the first 11 verses of Hosea 11. Let us hear the word of God. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refuse to repent. And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Admar? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, then his sons shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. Now we'll read from the beginning of Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, 
Where is he who is being born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then... Being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and we trust that he will bless it to us. Now please turn with me again to the prophecy of Hosea and to chapter 11. And as the Lord will help us, I want us to look this evening at the first 11 verses of this chapter, but I'll just read the first couple of verses again. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. In the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel is sometimes described as the servant of the Lord. This language appears, for example, in the prophecy of Isaiah, in Isaiah 41. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you away. And yet Israel is also described as God's firstborn son. And this idea is prominent in the biblical account of Israel's exodus from Egypt. The Lord said to Moses as he was preparing him to go and speak to Pharaoh, When you go back to Egypt, say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, 
my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And to this command, God added a solemn warning. If you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And that is exactly what happened, as we know, after the many plagues which God sent to the Egyptians and the many warnings of Moses. The hardened heart of Pharaoh was only moved when the Lord struck all the firstborn of Egypt From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoners who were in the dungeon and all the firstborn of all the livestock, all the animals in the land of Egypt. And so in this context it's right to conclude that these words in Hosea chapter 11 refer to the exodus. When Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. In the New Testament, there are many references to the Exodus. Some highlight the faith of Moses and the Israelites. We're told, for example, in the letter to the Hebrews, that it was by faith that they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. And then other parts of the New Testament stress that there are lessons to be learned from what happened to the Israelites as they journeyed through the wilderness. And so we're reminded in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, for example, that the Israelites were all led by the cloud. They all crossed the Red Sea. They all had manna in the wilderness. They all drank the water which came from the rock. And these were pictures of spiritual realities. Indeed, the rock from which they drank was Christ. He was the rock. This rock was a picture of him. And yet with most of them, God was not well pleased. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They fell. They perished there. Because God judged them for their sin and their rebellion and The Apostle Paul goes on to tell us in that chapter we must learn from their example that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted, nor should we become idolaters as some of them were, nor commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell, nor tempt Christ as some of them tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain of as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. But then in many parts of scripture, in the Old Testament and in the New, the Exodus is referred to as a symbol of God's redeeming work. The deliverance of Israel from Egypt was a redemptive act. God delivered his people from bondage, from Pharaoh's oppression. But it also anticipated the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ who has delivered his people from spiritual slavery and who leads us through this wilderness world to our heavenly home. So in John chapter 6, Jesus is portrayed as a second Moses and there we find him crossing the sea and climbing a mountain 
just as Moses had done. And then he fed the people with bread provided miraculously and he proclaimed that whereas Moses had fed the people with manna from heaven, he was the true bread. And if they came to him and believed in his name, they would neither hunger nor thirst. And then the Exodus is referred to in a different way in Romans chapter 6 and 7 and 8. There we find language that is typically associated with the Exodus being used to portray salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're told in Romans chapter 6 that those who are baptised into Christ Jesus, and perhaps the apostle there is thinking there of Israel crossing through the Red Sea, that was a figure of baptism. Those who are baptised into Christ Jesus are set free from slavery to sin. And then in Romans chapter 7, we're taught to compare the giving of the law, which could never bring life, to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who sets us free from death. And then we're encouraged in Romans chapter 8 to look forward to our final deliverance, to our heavenly inheritance, what the Apostle Paul calls the glory which shall be revealed to us. And crucially, in that chapter, the Exodus terminology is again connected to sonship. After speaking of all these things, the Apostle says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, just as the people of Israel were led through the wilderness by the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage or the spirit of slavery again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So we have this idea coming together, of these ideas coming together, the, the redemptive work of God, his deliverance of his people from slavery to sin and sonship. And these verses here in Hosea chapter 11 refer to the Exodus and so ultimately to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in common with these other parts of scripture, they connect the themes of sonship and redemption. And I want you to see that they especially focus on the fatherhood of God. And they provide us with a striking portrait of how God the Father relates to his people and how he acts towards us, those who are his sons and daughters by adoption and by grace. And there's no ambiguity in the words which begin this chapter. They speak of a father's affection. When Israel was a child, I loved him. I loved him. And we know that the scriptures clearly teach us that God's love for his Old Testament people was not prompted by any goodness or any virtue or any merit that he saw in them. Nor was it contingent on their love for him. He loved them, as we 
saw this morning because he would love them. He loved them because he loved them. You can't go any further back than that. His love was free. His love was everlasting. It was neither merited nor earned. It was bestowed on Israel in his sovereign good pleasure. And yet this does not mean that his love for his people was abstract or distant or impersonal. It flowed from the depths of his heart and was characterized by tenderness and by affection. And so it is with God's love for his people today. His love for you, if you're a Christian, he has loved you with an everlasting love. Loves you despite all that you are in yourself. Loves you in his free and sovereign good pleasure. He loves you with tenderness and with affection. God's love for Israel was expressed by his gracious and tender care. And this is depicted in the text by a series of familiar images. The first depicts a loving father teaching his child to take his first steps. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. We can imagine this, can't we? A, a father with, with a young child, a toddler, and the child is unsteady on his feet. His legs are weak, his balance is imperfect. He's yet to learn how to stand upright, how to put one foot in front of another. And his father comes alongside him to help him and holds onto his hand or, or clutches his arms gently to hold the child up to help him to walk. That's the kind of image that we have here. And then the second picture is only touched on briefly and we need to use our imagination. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. We might imagine a very sick child in bed, perhaps too weak to move, unable to feed himself. Perhaps even drifting in and out of consciousness. And his loving father comes beside him and watches over him and ministers to him. Tenderly cares for his son until he has nursed him back to health. And when the child recovers, he's not even aware that his father was there all the time by his bedside nursing him. He does not know that his father has healed him. And then there's a third image here in the text, which seems to depict a child walking through a dangerous environment. We might imagine in our day perhaps a busy street or a crowded shopping centre. And the child has an inclination to run off into the place of danger, perhaps to run out into the road in front of the traffic or to disappear into the crowd where he'll be lost. And so, to prevent this from happening, the loving father holds onto him tightly, holds his arms gently but firmly. And, and when the child wants to, to run off, gently restrains him, pulls him back. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. 
and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. And then the final image portrays a loving father stooping down to feed his child. You could imagine perhaps him cutting the food into small pieces, putting each piece gently, carefully into the child's mouth, stooping down. I stooped and fed them. These are images which speak of tender care and love and compassion. And they all describe how the Lord graciously attended to the needs of his Old Testament people. When the Israelites gathered at Mount Sinai to receive the law of the Lord, he declared through Moses, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He reminded the people that they could never have saved themselves. They could never have escaped from Pharaoh's oppression. Using their own strength, their own ingenuity. They were too weak, they were too powerless. Too crushed and dispirited. Too lost. Too helpless to secure their own deliverance. But God had taken them by the hand. He had mercifully and graciously and tenderly led them out. We find some similar words in Deuteronomy 32. Again speaking of the Lord's care for the nation of Israel. In the time of the Exodus he, he found him in a desert land. In the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him. And if we know the Lord, if he is our God, if he is our saviour, we can relate to this reality, can't we? We know what we once were, that we were lost, that we were helpless, that we were blind, that we did not know what was good for us, that we had no power to escape from temptation, no ability to change our own hearts, no inclination to seek the Lord. No understanding of the way of salvation. We were lost. We were helpless. But God in his mercy. In his goodness. In his tender love and compassion. Revealed his love for our souls. By drawing us to himself. By changing our hearts. By healing our spiritual diseases. By giving us new life. By rescuing us from the powers of darkness. And throughout our lives he has tenderly cared for us. Hasn't he? As he has provided for all our needs. As he has gently taught us and instructed us. And 
given us understanding and enabled us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through all the pathways of life, he's shown us the way. He's given us all that we need and more. And he's, he's protected us from evil. Our loving Father has never forsaken us. And we continue to feel the warmth of his love and his grace and his kindness and his tenderness towards us. This is a father's affection. But then second we see in these verses a father's anger. As they depict the loving care of the Lord, these verses also highlight the rebellion and the ingratitude of God's Old Testament people. How did they respond to God's tenderness, his love, his compassion? Well, instead of hearing the word of the Lord, they listened to the voices of the people who surrounded them in the nations that did not know the Lord. This led them into idolatry. As they called them, I think those words are referring to to the surrounding nations. As they called them, as these different nations called the people of Israel, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. They turned to idolatry. And then we see verse 6 and 7. They quickly became bent on backsliding from the Lord. They claimed to worship him, that this was merely an outward show. They went to the altars and offered their sacrifices, but their hearts were far from the Lord. They called to the Most High. None at all exalt him. They didn't truly worship him. They departed from him. They went their own way. They dishonored him. And that's the story of fallen humanity, isn't it? It's the way that in our natural condition we're all inclined to go. Even those of us who know him, we see how the Lord so graciously provides for us, how he cares for us. And yet so often we turn back to ways of sin and unrighteousness. We turn our back on him. And we see in these verses that although the Israelites were God's chosen people, they could not expect to escape from the consequences of their sinful rebellion. God would hold them to account, for with their many privileges came great responsibility. And they had the law of the Lord, the word which plainly taught them to honour their father and their mother, that their days may be long upon the land. It's the fifth commandment. And if a penalty for dishonouring their earthly parents was expulsion from the land of Canaan, could they not expect a more severe punishment for departing from the Lord, who is the supreme authority, from the heavenly Father who had given them all these blessings? Then according to Deuteronomy chapter 21, a rebellious son was to be put to death. 
If a man has a stubborn and a rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. That was the penalty for disobedience. And it may perhaps sound very severe to us. But you see, the purpose of this law was to establish patterns of obedience in, in society. And if the men would not obey their parents, if they would not submit to their earthly parents, how could they be in a right relationship with God, the Heavenly Father, He who is the supreme authority? Rebellion against their earthly parents was merely a sign of a rebellious heart towards God. And so this severe punishment is, is enacted against those who, who rebelled. And if we recoil at words such as these, it may be because we're far too dismissive of God's righteousness and justice, far too tolerant of rebellious attitudes within our own hearts. We must be willing to submit to the Lord in every situation. And in these verses God expresses his anger. He expresses his determination to impose on Israel the penalty for disobedience. First and in accordance with the warning attached to the fifth commandment. The people will be expelled from the land. And this would not involve a literal return to Egypt. But the exodus would be reversed. By the people being brought under Assyrian rule. He shall not return to the land of Egypt. Verse 5. But the Assyrian shall be his king. Because they refused to repent. And then second and in accordance with Deuteronomy chapter 21. The people would face death. The sword shall slash in his cities. Devour his districts and consume them. Because of their own counsels, my people are bent on backsliding from me. And you see, we must understand that the kindness and the tenderness and the compassion and the mercy of God exist in perfect harmony with his righteousness, with his justice. He is the Holy One in our midst. He described in verse 9, he is a holy one. It's not in his nature to indulge sinful human rebellion. Nor would it be good for him to do so. To restrain the effects of sin, he must punish wickedness. He must act consistently with his own character. He's always faithful to himself. And in the experience of his people, he must... Act against us sometimes to show us our sin and to bring us to repentance. So we see the Father's anger. And then we see the Father's anguish. The remaining verses in this chapter contain one of the most remarkable speeches in all the scriptures. They give us a view into the heart of God. 
And they depict what appears to be an inward struggle between his grace and justice, between his love and his righteousness. So knowing that he must punish his people for their sins, he says, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Admar? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. Admar and Zeboim were two of the five cities of the plain. They were destroyed at the same time as Sodom and Gomorrah. They were burnt to the ground. According to Deuteronomy chapter 29, the land around these cities was turned to salt, to brimstone, to burning. And with the anguished cry of a broken-hearted father, the Lord here seems to recoil from punishing Israel in the same way. The kingdom was ripe for destruction. The people were hard of heart. They were rebellious. They would not repent. And yet he cannot give up on his people. How can I give you up, Ephraim, he says. How can I hand you over, Israel? And the next verse indicates that this inward struggle was resolved. By the Lord not executing the sentence that his justice demanded. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come with terror. And the remaining verses expand on this as... They describe the prospect of future restoration. The reference to the Lord roaring as a lion in verses in verse ten is is not alluding to God coming in judgment, coming to act against his people. On the contrary, the roar of the lion is a call to return. It would make the people tremble, but it would also bring them home. When he roars, then his sons shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt. They would return from exile. God would restore them. Build them up again. And this prophecy, we know, was partially fulfilled when the people of Judah returned from exile in Babylon. It was further fulfilled when the New Testament church proclaimed the gospel to the Jews who had been scattered all over the world and many of them were saved through faith in Christ. And it continues to be fulfilled as God calls his people from every tribe and tongue and nation and gathers them into his kingdom. But how do we explain The resolution of the struggle here described in this prophecy. How can I give you up, Ephraim? 
how can I hand you over Israel? If God is just, how can he say, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger? Well, to answer this question, we need to return to the New Testament, not to the scriptures which refer to the Exodus, but to the single passage which we read earlier, which quotes the opening verse of this chapter. Out of Egypt, I called my son. You remember that when the wise men from the east had visited the child Christ with his father and his mother, an angel appeared to Joseph warning him that Herod would seek to destroy the child. So in response to this message, Joseph takes Jesus and his mother into the land of Egypt and they stay there until the death of Herod. There they're safe. And this, says Matthew, was the fulfillment of this prophecy. Like the nation of Israel, Jesus was the servant of the Lord, the servant, the faithful servant, the obedient servant, the suffering servant. And like Israel, he was perfectly faithful. And like the nation of Israel, Christ is his firstborn son. And unlike the kingdom of Israel, he is neither stubborn nor rebellious. He is not hard-hearted. He is not one who turns his back on the Father. He is the righteous Son. He is the perfect Son. And he fails to do what Israel, and he does what Israel fails to do. Lives that life of perfect obedience. And you see, when he came out of it, exile in Egypt, he came as the representative of all God's people to fulfill the law, to be perfectly obedient to the Father's will. And his obedience is the basis of our deliverance from the wrath of God. It's because of his obedience that the Father can say, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. And as he looks at his people, he looks upon us in love and in mercy and receives us, notwithstanding what we are in ourselves. But then we remember also that Jesus experienced another exile There was that time in the early years of his life when he went into Egypt with his parents and came out as the faithful son. But then there was also that terrible exile that he experienced on the cross. He was forsaken by the father. He cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the worst kind of exile that could ever be experienced. And you see, God can say to his people, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger 
because he has already punished our sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has, if you like, internalized his wrath by pouring it out on his son. In this prophecy, the the word translated churn in verse 8 is identical to the word translated overthrow in Deuteronomy 29. There's that overthrow of those cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, of Admah and Zeboim. They were overthrown. They were burnt to the ground. And here mysteriously, remarkably, wonderfully, God says, my heart is overthrown within me. And you see, the father did not spare his son. He literally overthrew him. He poured out his anger on him. That he might secure redemption for his people. The judgment fell on Christ. That sinners like us might be set free. That we might be delivered from slavery to sin. And brought by God's grace to our heavenly inheritance. The justice of God has been satisfied. And his love fully expressed. So see here the mercy of God. The kindness, the tenderness, the love of the Father. Father who did not spare his own son, but offered him up for us all, that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. May God bless his word to us.